0: Two years ago, my garden bed rotted out. I think it was struck by lightning and it was just old and then it died. And so I dug it out of the ground two years ago and I was just too lazy to put another one in that year. So I've been without a garden now for, for over a year. But this year, um, kind of beginning of winter, I could start to feel like the gardening itch come back. For Christmas, I bought myself, I don't know if this is how you get your Christmas gifts. For Christmas, I bought myself a couple of gardening books and just to just kind of like get, in the, get, get the excitement built up again. And I had to decide, what do I wanna make my garden beds out of? I put my garden beds on a, on a hill in my backyard so I don't waste like my flat space. Beforehand, I, I used wood, but wood rots. And I thought, man, I just don't wanna keep replacing all the wood. So I had this brilliant idea my brilliant idea is that I would get these massive limestone blocks. You know the blocks I'm talking about? They're like two foot by two foot by five foot. They're massive. And I saw on Facebook that they're only like $70 a block. And I thought, what a great idea. I can just make my garden bed, terrace it with these massive stones because it's not that expensive. But then as I did my research, I found out, well, yeah, the blocks aren't that expensive. But the shipping is crazy. (laughs) And not only that, but not only is the shipping crazy. Imagine each block is like 1,700 pounds. But not only is the the shipping crazy, but the biggest expense is placing the blocks. Because you have to have special equipment. If you're doing it on a hill, you have to make sure the grading is right. And, And there's just all this other math that goes into it. Grogan boys, you do have to do math as adults. I told them beforehand, they were doing math. I'm like, I don't do math as an adult. Brittany's like, stop it, don't tell them that. But there was a lot of math that went into it. Uh, Let's say though, I didn't do my research. And let's say I had this great idea about making these garden beds out of stone. And I go ahead and buy the stone. I say, guys, just drop it off in the front yard. I'll move them later. And then after the garden blocks, these 1,700-pound blocks are sitting in my front yard, I say, well, what's next? I can't move them myself. And the cost to place them is just too expensive. So what am I going to do? I just have to like leave them there in my front yard as a monument to my failure, right? <laughs> and, so, and so anytime someone would drive up to my house, they'd see these five giant, limestone blocks and say why do you have blocks in your yard and every time I would have to in shame say well I was going to build a garden bed but I didn't count the cost and people would be like are you serious It just makes sense that you would count the cost before you start that project. Not just the initial cost, but the finishing cost. In our passage today, Jesus talks about discipleship. And he's been talking about discipleship over the past few chapters. But this is kind of the climax where Jesus is saying, before you follow me, before you say, I want the name of Christ on me. Before you say, I am a disciple of Jesus, what we need to do is we need to make sure we pause and we count the cost of following Jesus. In my class, I teach uh, to 10th graders. I, guess they're freshmen. I taught 10th graders last semester. I have freshmen this year. Uh, we're, it's a worldview class. And before class begins, we usually read a little scripture. We do a little devotional. And we are reading in Matthew chapter 10, about how Jesus is sending his disciples out as sheep amongst wolves and the persecution that we'll face. And so I asked my ninth grade students, I said, are we, are we as Christians going to face this type of persecution that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 10? And there was a consensus in the class that, yeah, there might be some persecutions against the church of Christ, against Christians, but, but really not that much. Like in America, you might get a nasty look, or, or even a, um, a mean word. And that's about it. Other parts of the world, it's, it's more difficult. And on l- one level, I had to agree. Other parts of the world, it's definitely more difficult. But at the same time, we need to realize that our culture is changing. We have to realize that what once used to be accepted as good, a Christian ethic, is now being viewed as bad. And what used to be condemned as wicked and evil is now being celebrated as something that's good. And if you as a disciple of Jesus Christ want to live your life in such a way where you say the word of God is good and what it says is good and what it says is bad is bad, to live life in that way means that you will be condemned. We might not fully feel the weight of this yet, but as the years go by, we will see this change in this attitude more and more. If you're a parent in this room, realize you are going to be raising your kids in a culture and a society that does not value the things that Christ Values, And as someone who teaches 10th or 9th grade worldview in a Christian school, I can tell you that oftentimes by the time your kids are 14, the way that they understand the world and what they value as good and bad is oftentimes already set. That's why we as a church need to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus we need to understand it, and we need to communicate it to further generations. You say, well, Stephen, I don't have kids. You might even say, I'm not even married. But if you're a part of this community, you have kids. Some of them are, are laying on the chairs right now. Some of them are doodling. Some of them are in the, in the nursery right now. But, but they are part of your spiritual family that you have responsibility for. That's what it means to be a part of a family, what it means to be a part of a community. And we have to realize that there is this coming storm. And we've always needed to count the cost, but the need to count the cost is even greater. Paul wrote to his his protege, Timothy. He said, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. John, the disciple of Jesus, the beloved disciple, said, if the... Uh, Jesus was saying this, and John recorded it. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There is a cost to following Christ. And in this passage, Jesus lays out what some of that cost is. There is a personal cost. There is a material cost. And there is a warning for us not to give up once we start down this journey, this path. So let's look at these. First of all, let's look at the cost of the discipleship, the cost of this personal cost. We see this in verses 25 through 30 of chapter 14. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, Wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying something very hard for anybody in any century, but especially in his century, family was the building block of society. There was nothing more important than family. In fact, if you were a first century Jew living at the time of Jesus and you were a son and you got married, you didn't move away. You moved in. Family was multi generational. And you did not want to shame your family, you did not want to hurt your family. And Jesus said the most important thing to you is the relationships you have with your family. But unless you're willing to hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, your brother and sister, don't come after me. That's a heavy statement. Is Jesus really saying that we need to to hate our family? Not really. What Jesus is saying is there ought to be this, this comparison, this priority. And Jesus said that the love for Christ has to be such a greater love that it dwarfs all other loves. That Jesus is the primary relationship that we have in our lives. And I would even say this, I would go, and I would say, if you do not have this priority in your life, that Christ is the greatest priority in your life, then you're not loving your family the way you ought to love them. If Christ is not the primary love in your life, and you're a son or daughter, then you're truly not going to honor your father and mother the way you should. If Christ is not the primary love in your life and you are are a husband and Christ isn't your primary love, then you are not going to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church, giving his life for her. And you are going to live your life and your covenant relationship with your spouse in a selfish way. That your life is about you and not about lifting up your spouse. If Christ is not primary in your life and you are a wife, then you will not truly support and respect your husband well. If you are a parent, and you do not love Christ more than anything, then you will not be the parent that you need to be. You will not not teach and train your children to love and respect our God in heaven the way you ought to. Loving Christ first and loving Christ primary allows us to love all those other people the way they ought to be loved. And that is what Christ calls us. To do. For those of you who are struggling with family, because that happens. It happens in, in, in our immediate family, but it happens with extended family. Tensions are high, feelings are raw. The best thing you can do in that situation is to pour your life into Christ. You want healing. Pour your life into Christ. You want to seek restoration and reconciliation? Then pour your life into Christ. You want to heal a broken marriage? Then pour your life into Christ. You want to see your children follow after Jesus? Then pour your life into Christ. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, then your love for me has to be the primary love that you have. Putting Jesus first, essentially what this does is it, is it reorders our desires. Loving Christ reorders our desires. Look at what Jesus says in these verses. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. What does he mean by you have to love Christ more than your own life? Yes, there is some aspect there that that it's your literal life. All the disciples except for John died martyr's death. So we have to love Christ more than our own physical life. But there's also this idea that you have to love Christ more than you love all your other desires. We have desires for purpose We have desires to be loved and accepted. We have desires for joy and pleasure. We have desires to succeed and accomplish. But what sin does, sin takes these desires and it disorders them. It corrupts them so that your desire to succeed means that you will sacrifice your family. Isn't that ironic? That when we don't love Christ as ultimate and our love for success is ultimate, we essentially hate our spouse and our children, our mother and father and our brothers and sisters because we're pursuing that desire. But when we pursue that desire, it does not lift them up, but it destroys them. We have to follow Christ, and when we follow Christ and we love Christ, this this reorders our desires. What Jesus is saying is that he will not share allegiance with any other thing that's greater than him, that he is primary. It's not I belong to Jesus and, but it's I belong to Jesus, period. We live our lives so often in, in a divided, torn sort of way, don't we? That we think, oh, yeah, Christianity is good, Jesus is good, but it's Jesus and. And it's oftentimes the things that fall in the category of and that take our desire, and our passions, and is our drive. Jesus is saying, I am the one that drives you. And we have to count the cost of that following Him. Look at verse 27, 28. Jesus says, For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost? to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the other onlookers will begin to ridicule, saying, this man started to build, but he was not able to finish. All right, now I'm reading to my kids. uh, It's like a kid's version of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, which follows a Uh, In the original, it's a man named Christian. Uh, In in the kids' version, it's it's a rabbit named Christian. Um, But but we're reading the story with him. In the very beginning, whenever Christian, the main character, decides to go to the celestial city to see and to love and worship the king, he invites a friend to go along with him. And this friend that he invites to go along with him, his name is Pliable. And as soon as they reach the the slough of Despond and they fall into the mud, Pliable says, what are we doing? As soon as it got difficult, he said, what are we doing? Why are we struggling in such a way when things can be just as nice, if not better, like living our old life in our old world? And so what does Pliable do? Pliable pulls himself out of the mud and he goes back to the city of destruction. But when you read this story, when Pliable goes back to the city of destruction, all of his friends, all of his neighbors begin to mock him, begin to ridicule him. Why? Because he started off on the journey to go see the good king, but then quickly gave up. Jesus is saying that there is ridicule. There is shame in starting the journey and then giving up. And he is encouraging us to not give up. Don't be like Lot's wife who's escaping destruction only to look back and longing about what's being destroyed and then she herself was destroyed. Don't put your hand to the plow To work for the kingdom of God only to lift your hand and say, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. But he's saying, let us continue with endurance to the end, regardless of that personal cost. Then Jesus, after he talks about this personal cost of following him, he also talks about a material cost. When you look at these two parables he tells, one about a builder and one about a king, you might think he's telling the same parable uh, to make the same point. But there's just a shade of difference in the points. And, and we'll see that as, as we read it. Look at verse 31 and through 33. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while there's others still far off, he'll send a delegation, ask for terms of peace. Verse 33, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Do you realize that the shade of difference here? In those first verses, Jesus was talking about people. In this verse, he's talking more about possessions. Some of you in the room are, are much more driven by, by relationship. And relationship is so important for you others of us in this room, we're not driven by relationship more than we are by possessions and by the material world. And Jesus is saying that if you want to follow after him, then you have to renounce all of your possessions. Here in a few weeks, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is like spoiler alert. Here in a few weeks, we're going to talk about a rich, young ruler. Do y'all know the story of a rich, young ruler? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow after you. What what do I need to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler then says, I've done all these things. I've done all these things. I I have kept the commandments. And Jesus says, well, there's one more thing that you need to do. I want you to go and sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor, and follow after me. When I was talking about this with my class, I asked them the question, I said, does Jesus ask the same for everybody? Does Jesus ask everybody to like, sell their possessions, give it away, and follow him? And the consensus of the class was once again, well, no. He doesn't ask that for everybody, but at the same time, he kind of does, doesn't he? Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, he's saying yes, you, you need to renounce all of your possessions. Jesus is asking us to give everything to him. Everything that we have, every wealth, every possession, every bit of time that we have belongs to Jesus. And he is calling us to renounce them and following after him. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. <clears throat> but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the question. Where is your treasure? Is your treasure in the things of this earth? Is in the wealth that you have? Is your treasure in the time that you want to divvy out for the things that you want to do? Or is your treasure in the kingdom of God? Let's look at these two uh, different aspects. We'll We'll look at money. We'll look at time. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What consumes your resources? What consumes your money? If you assess how you use your money, would you say that Christ is your treasure or your earthly desires your treasure? One of the things that we say in our church is that giving is a part of worship. We don't pass an offering box like churches used to do. We have a box in the back. We have online giving, but we say that giving is a part of worship. Why do we say that? Is it because there are bills to be paid, payroll and utilities, and now we've got a mortgage? Is, is, is that why? No. It's not. Yeah, you have to have a budget to run an organization, but there is a deeper reason why we give as a part of worship. In part, we give because it's commanded. That scripture calls us to renounce our treasures and to give it to the kingdom of God. When I say this and when I'm talking about giving, I don't just mean giving to a church. Does that make sense? When I'm talking about giving, I'm not just talking about putting money in the offering box because that's not only what God requires. But what God requires is us sharing our resources to help other people. So if you think, well, Stephen's just trying to increase the church's budget. If that's what you think I'm saying, just give that money to other people to help other people in the body of Christ. All right? Where our money is oftentimes reveals where our treasure is. We give because it's commanded. But the other reason that we give is because it's formative, it forms who we are. Giving needs to be a regular part of worship because we need a regular reminder that everything we have belongs to him. So we say giving should be regular. Giving needs to be done cheerfully because it is a reminder that Jesus is our hope and our financial resources are not. So we give cheerfully. We give sacrificially because we believe that God is the one who provides us what we need. it's not us pulling ourselves back up by our own bootstraps and working extra hard that provides for us but it's the king of heaven that provides for us when we think about our resources and how we spend it are we spending it on kingdom work or are we spending it on our own desires let's look at time time And the discussion of time and how we use our time might even be a more touchy subject. Last night, I did math. Once again, more math. Math came up twice today. Last night, I was doing doing some math and I was asking myself, how much time do we have in a year? Of course, we all know we have 365 days in a year, but how many hours is that? Can you do the math right quick? Any mental math people? Mental math, if you take 365 days in a year, you multiply that by 24 hours a day, we have 8,760 hours a year. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we spend that time? I made, in fact, not only did I do math last night, I made a pie graph. Look Look at this, guys. You can't read it, but you can see it, right? So if you look at this time graph, Hours in a year. I'll read the numbers. Let's say we sleep eight hours. If you're like me, you probably need a little bit more than eight hours to be pleasant. Uh, But if we just sleep eight hours a night, that's two thousand nine hundred and twenty hours. That's thirty-three percent of our year is spent in bed sleeping. What about work? Let's just say, let's let's be positive and just say, we work 50 hours a week. And many of you would say, oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. And if you're in the military, I know the army doesn't count it, but I think PT counts as part of work as well. But That's just my opinion. All right, so so let's say you work 50 hours a week. That's 2,600 hours. How much is that percentage-wise? That's about 30%. What about eating? I like to eat, food is good. If we eat three meals a day, cooking, eating, 365 hours a year, it's about an hour a day between our meals. This one will be shocking. How much time do we spend on social media? And this is not just screen time total. This is just social media, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, whatever else is out there, 863 hours a year. 10% of our year is spent. We basically, we basically tithe to Zuckerberg with our time. 10%. All right. <laughs> Television. Google helped me on all this. I said, what's the average number of hours we spend a day on television or on social media television average number of hours a day is four hours a day some of you said well i'm not average but that's still 1462 hours a day think about that i didn't add up all those things but when you think about all that time what are you being formed by What's developing you? What's shaping you? What's creating and firing your desires? Because oftentimes when it comes to our Christian faith, we say, well, I'll go to church, but I don't have time to read my Bibles in the morning, or I don't have time for community groups, or I don't have time for discipleship groups, or I don't have time for community. So some people say, well, I'll just go to church. And if you don't miss one Sunday and you're there week in and week out all year, you get 52 hours. And when we compare that with what we give to Mark Zuckerberg or what we give to Paramount Plus or to Netflix or to Disney Plus or whatever Plus is out there, do we see the disparity? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to renounce everything. All other allegiances, all other people are secondary. All other desires and things are secondary. When Jesus said, I want to make a pie graph, this is what Jesus' pie graph looks like. I want it all. So that when you go to work, You're not going to work for you so that you can fund your stuff and your vacations. You're going to work for me. You are my witness and my ambassador in your office and in your classroom. And whenever you're on social media, you don't just represent your political ideology. You don't just represent your family or your workplace. You represent Christ. Everywhere you go, everything you do, Jesus says, it's mine. Do you still want to be my disciple? Our lives are to be lived out as a living sacrifice. Whenever, whenever, uh, whenever Peter heard Jesus with a rich young ruler, and Jesus said, it's hard for someone with great wealth to enter into the kingdom of heaven because they got so many other desires and so many other hopes. Peter and the disciples asked, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus' response says this, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. When we look at this, it's weighty on us, isn't it? Like, I gotta do what? My wife, my wife has to look like what? But what Jesus is saying is you don't do this on your own strength, but I am the one who strengthens you. But what we do on our end is we allow ourselves to submissively lay our lives before him, and we say, we need you to form us. So we make church a priority. We make community a priority. We make being in God's word throughout the week a priority. We make all the other wicked things that come into our life, we make it a priority, but we make it a priority to strip it out because it's not good, true, and beautiful. And it's through that that we are formed in the image of Christ. And it's through that that we endure to the end. Jesus's last statement here is essentially a warning saying, don't give up says now salt is good but a salt should lose its taste how will it be made salty again uh, salt in the first century wasn't like pure salt it, they got it from the dead sea and so it had all these other impurities and sometimes the salt would like wash out and you'd just be left with the impurities and so it would have no taste and Jesus said if your salt loses its saltiness what is it good for it's not good for preserving. It's not good for flavor and taste. It's not good for, for, for balancing your soil. It's not good for the manure heap. You just throw it out. It's trash. Let anyone who has ears, let them hear. Let them listen. Jesus is warning us, don't give up. That the only life worth living is a life that is laid before the king of the universe don't give up and this is the paradox in our faith the paradox in our faith is that we only find life when we do give it up Jesus said this in the book of Luke chapter 9 If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it to pursue those other desires, to make them ultimate, to pursue those relationships, to make them ultimate, to leave Christ on the sidelines and not take up his cross. He says, that's the way you lose your life. But whoever loses his life because of me We'll save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? Christ Community Church of Jesus gave us a hard word today in Luke chapter 14. I pray that it's not a discouragement, but rather an encouragement to pour our life purposefully into Christ, that we don't live life, that we don't just live life like we're floating down the Guadalupe, right? You ever do that? Go tubing down a river? If you've not been in Texas long, it's a thing we do. Uh, Eight hours, you jump on an inner tube, you float down a river. There's no purpose in that, right? You just sit there and you let the current take you where it wants to go. That's oftentimes how we live life. We allow the ways and the current of life just to move us along. And Jesus said, it's time to stop that. And it's time to allow me to direct your life. Is Christ directing your life? Is all of your allegiance to him? Let's stand and pray.